we're going to talk about Armageddon. The day after tomorrow, Deep Impact, 2012. These are all titles that have been given to big blockbuster Hollywood movies that try to imagine events which could cause the end of the world. And it just seems that despite the huge progress that the human race has made, uh, the huge progress in areas like science and technology and medicine and civil rights and environmental awareness and collaboration between um, countries, that there is still a subconscious fear that the human race isn't destined to go on to bigger and better things that the end of the world could come when we least expect it. At least that seems to be the view in Hollywood, um, at, at, at least, but I think that that subconscious um, feeling goes a lot further than that. We've reached chapter 21 in our um, series of talks through the Gospel of Luke, and um, the subject title is The Signs of the End Times. So let's read the passage first, and then we'll say something about it. So it's Luke 21, and I'm reading from verse 5. Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to take place? He replied, watch out that you are not deceived, for many will come in my name claiming I am he, and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation, nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines and pestilences in various places, and fearful events and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison, and you'll be brought before kings and governors and all account of my name. And so you will bear testimony to me. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you'll defend yourselves, for I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed, even by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but not a hair of your head will perish. Stand firm and you will win life. When you see Jerusalem, being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out and let those in the country not enter the city. For this is a time of punishment in fulfilment of all that has been written. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There will be signs in the sun, moon and stars 
On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror, apprehension of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. He told them this parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Be careful, or your heart will be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness and the anxieties of life. And the day will close on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come on all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen. And that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Wow, <clears throat> it's, a, <laughs> it's a difficult and quite terrifying passage. Um, the language is vague um, in places. Um, many scholars think that this actually is a compilation, at least um, in some parts, of other things that, Jesus, of things that Jesus said on other occasions, so it doesn't necessarily... Um, flow in the way that Luke has put, put it together. Um, it, it, it doesn't um, have, the, have the sense of, uh, of, of the events flowing in a neat chronological order. Uh, there are references to the Old Testament. There are references to prophecies which were to be fulfilled in the lifetime of the disciples. There were prophecies to be fulfilled in our future. And there were prophecies with multiple fulfillments that were going to be prophesied back then and also in our future. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a medley of difficultness <laughs> for anyone to be asked to, um, to, to speak about it or for any of us reading it um, at, at home to try and really understand um, what's going on. But it was given for a reason. So we should at least try to <coughs> make some sense of it. And it starts with the temple, as we read. The temple that Herod was building. This is like that place in, um, in, in, in Barcelona. It, had been, it was being built for a long time and it was going to carry on being built for a long time after this. But it was an amazing temple. Um, I think it was Josephus who wrote about it, um, saying that the gold on this temple could be seen from miles and miles around. It made Jerusalem just like shine like a beacon to anyone as they were approaching uh, Jerusalem. It was absolutely phenomenal. And it was regarded as one of the wonders of, the, of the, um, the ancient world. So it was no surprise that the disciples were impressed. But in verses five to six, Jesus tells them that this amazing temple would soon be no more. He gave them this prophecy that the temple uh, was going to be totally destroyed. And Naturally, the disciples ask when, and it seems to me that from the way Jesus answered their question, that he could read their, their minds, and he knew that 
what they were thinking was that this amazing temple would surely be there right to the, to the very end of the age. They were associating the destruction of the temple with the end of the, end of the world. It would surely go on um, all that time. And Jesus replied to show that the things that he, just, that he was telling them about, that they would not be the end. In other words, this temple was not going to last as long as they thought it was. It made me think about how people, how we often assume that uh, our way of life, our institutions, uh, our monuments and great buildings, the Cathedral of Notre Dame comes to mind, obviously, with recent events, um, that these things will carry on and on into the future, hundreds, maybe even thousands of years that they'll just keep on going to be enjoyed by countless future directions. Um, directions, um, that's the word I'm looking for. Generations. <laughs> Generations going in all directions. <laughs> that it'll continue to be enjoyed right off into the distant future. But like a mighty bulldozer, God's judgment comes and sweeps it all away. And that was certainly true of Herod's temple. This prophecy was fulfilled only about 40 years later. When, um, and just shortly after it was completed, it was carried on for another 40 years. He'd only just finished it, or the building of it had only just been finished. And the Romans came in, they sacked Jerusalem, they destroyed the temple. Um, and because of the gold, which was rumoured to be hidden between the, the very blocks of, its, of, of, of the building, that the, uh, the Romans, looking to find the gold, literally tore it apart and not a single stone was left attached to another, just as Jesus said um, in his prophecy of verse 6. So we have the temple. Then, in verses 9 to 11, we read about even more terrible things. Um, natural disasters. Wars, other fearful events, and great signs from heaven, whatever, whatever they might be. You know, there have been many people going through terrible and terrifying experiences who have wrongly believed on the back of prophecies like this that the end of the world had come or that the end of the world was, was imminent. But that's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying that even the most unimaginable wars and disasters are only signs pointing to the future. They do not mean that the end has come. And I know that's easier to acknowledge in theory. And when people do experience terrible, terrible things, um, we can see why they might think that this is the biblical end of the world. Especially with war, for example. I mean, war is the most terrible, terrible thing, isn't it? Um, books, if you've read any books about e just even the Second World War, one war in the last century, and they're really difficult books to read when you read about people's personal um, experiences. They're, they're terrible. You could easily imagine anyone going through the Holocaust or living in Russia or in, any, or in France or in any of the countries that were all consumed and occupied um, by the Nazis in the um, Second World War. You could understand why they might think that the end of the world, uh, the, the, the world had come. 
And yet, there have always been wars. Over the last 2,000 years since Jesus said this, there have been very few years in recorded history when there has not been a war going on somewhere. There have been many, many wars. And even if World War III should happen, that thing that we kind of live in fear of because of nuclear weapons and how terrible it might be, even if that happened, it would not mean that the end of the world had come. And likewise with natural disasters. You know, before the temple was destroyed in AD 70, there had been a terrible earthquake in Laodicea. The great city of Pompeii had been swept aside and swallowed by a volcano. And there had been a great, terrible famine in Rome itself. So we had the natural disasters, we had the destruction of the temple. And guess what? We're still here. The end of the world didn't come, did it? None of these events meant that the end of the world would come. And likewise today, if war came to our country, or if sea levels continue to rise and devastate coastal communities, or if we have another financial crisis, or if all of those three things happened at the same time, or if something even more terrible was to happen, it would not mean that the end of the world was about to, was about to happen. And that's important for us to know, because... Otherwise, with wrong expectations, our faith could fail. If we really believe that something's about to happen and it doesn't happen, then oh, maybe, maybe this is just all a fantasy. Maybe the Lord isn't coming. I mean, this was so bad. Surely this was the time prophesied. Surely the rapture is imminent. And where is it? You know, if we have wrong expectations, our faith becomes... We, 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 we make it more vulnerable. We make ourselves more vulnerable... Um, from failing faith or deception. Deceptions from military or political or religious or other leaders. People who say, in this time of crisis, you've got to follow me. I've got the answer. Follow me and we'll get through it. And that's what Jesus' warning is about in, in um, verses 8 and 9. Watch out that you are not deceived. For many will come in my name claiming I am he and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come straight away. Before all that, verse 12 tells us that there will be a terrible persecution of Christians. And of course, we know that that also happened just as Jesus prophesied. And it happened almost immediately there when the early church started to get um, established. What's shocking, I think, in what we read, what Jesus said, is the extent of collusion that there would be with the authorities from the friends, neighbours, and even the families of believers. Jesus said that the hatred towards Christians would be so bad that even parents would report their children to the authorities regardless of the expectation of them being arrested, imprisoned or maybe even executed. That even parents would do that. Shocking, but not hard to imagine because the history books are filled with accounts of similar persecutions. 
Not always against Christians, of course, but they show what can happen when any group of people gets labelled as a so-called enemy, uh, enemy of the state. And the mass murder of more than six million Jews in, um, under the Nazi regime. is a, a, a well-known example of that, isn't it? And although that prophecy was uh, first fulfilled in the great persecution of the early church, like the other prophecies that we've read, um, we, there is a, an ongoing, um, and there is an expectation of a future fulfillment of that, of that prophecy. And we shouldn't be surprised if Christianity, even in the UK, even in our lifetime, should become even more marginalised than it is now. Maybe even made illegal outside of, say, state-regulated churches. These things wouldn't be surprising. You know, we often say, well, you know, persecution, and there's terrible persecution of Christians in other places in the world right today. And we often say, well, you know... In our, in, in our country, we're not, you know, we don't, we're not going to be persecuted. We don't get persecutors. Uh, but sometimes people call us names. You know, we kind of get this idea that that's sort of our destiny, that our persecution of Christians will never be much worse than that. But the reality is that over the course of our lifetime, especially some of you who are younger, there's many decades of political change and attitude towards different religions and growing intolerance of anyone who's slightly different from the rest of them, rest of uh, everybody. So we shouldn't be surprised if these, things, if these things happen. But Jesus says to us, like he said to the first um, disciples, don't worry, stand firm. Whatever might happen to our bodies, no matter what suffering may or may not um, be experienced, uh, even if we should die, as many Christian martyrs, um, of course, already have, um, don't worry, because we cannot lose our eternal life. Not a hair on our head can, can perish. And what's more, God can use us in such circumstances to be the most powerful testimony to the world. And it may be that terrible things for us may possibly lay in God's plan for that very, for that purpose. But he says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. We need to stand firm. Now, the next section, verses 20 to 24, um, goes back to talking about the um, destruction of Jerusalem. And we, we know, of course, that that's already occurred, AD 70. Um, although the prophecy seems to be one of those ones which has a, um, a dual fulfilment. It seems to also be speaking about um, something which hasn't happened yet, um, a, future, a future day when the armies surround Jerusalem and, uh, and you know, we, there are other prophecies, I'm not going to get into them, but they give us um, insights into what may lay um, in the future before the Lord Jesus returns to this earth. Uh, the thing is with prophecy, and this is why I don't really relish talking about the subject, is that there is sometimes an expectation that the preacher will sort of <laughs> come up with sort of you know, this, that and the other, this is what that means and, and everything. We need to be very careful that we don't do that. Um, it, it, it's, it's very difficult um, to be certain about the detail 
of future events and how they relate to, to prophecy. And I don't think that's the reason why prophecy is given. I'll come on to that a little bit later. But, but what I do want to highlight from this section is something quite special that I hadn't noticed before about how God feels about judgment. We can see from verse 22 that all of this suffering for the Jews was God's judgment against his people. The word, we saw the word punishment there, didn't we? Um, this was a punishment for his people that he'd already warned them about uh, in the past. But if we look at another occasion when Jesus used similar language, talking about the same kind of things, we see something that's not quite so obvious in, in chapter 21. If you flick back just to chapter 19 and verse 41. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you even you had known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognise the time of God's um, coming to you. So you, you, you recognise that the similar language and the reference to the, the, the temple being destroyed and everything. So it's, it's talked about the same kind of thing, but there was something, something else in there. Did you see it? You see it in verse 41. It started off with Jesus wept. Jesus wept. And my point is simply to recognise that although God must judge righteously and in holiness, and it's not for us to tell God how we think he could perhaps do it differently, of course, he takes no delight in the suffering of human beings. And I think that on that day that we read about in Revelation 20, the great white throne judgment, when he sits on that throne, and when books are opened, and if anyone is, his name is not written in the book of life, they are condemned for all eternity. I think God will do that with great sorrow. Because as we know from verses like 2 Peter 3 and 9, he doesn't want anyone to perish. Uh, he wants all to be saved. He will not condemn people to eternal, uh, an eternity of separation from him with joy, with satisfaction, with delight. Satisfaction in the sense that judgment would eventually have been served, but that's not what God wants. That's why he sent Jesus into the world, so we don't have to face that judgment. So to me, it just, you know, when you read the Old Testament as well, you see a lot of occasions where God judges, and you think, oh, does God get a kick out of judging people? Does he enjoy it? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Now from verse 25, um, we see more prophecy about terrible, terrible events. Um, so terrible that they don't sound like anything that's ever happened um, already. Um, so I think they, that they must be future. I, think they, I mean, they really are the kind of things that you get in end-of-the-world um, blockbuster movies. But this isn't fiction, is it? These things will come to pass with the same certainty as the prophecies that we've already read about that have, that have already been fulfilled. So what's the purpose of prophecy? I think the main purpose of this prophecy 
is summed up in the little parable that Jesus taught um, in verse 29. Just remind ourselves of this little parable. He told them this parable, look at the fig tree and all the leaves. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. This prophecy wasn't meant to give a timeline of events leading up to the end of the world. And it wasn't intended to give detail about these events that would fuel speculation, uh, that would allow us in some way to predict when it was going to happen. It's saying, Jesus is saying in this prophecy simply, that when we see terrible things happening around us, as people have seen for the whole of the last 2,000 years, or if persecution should ever come to us in any way resembling the persecutions of the early church or persecution since, if it should intensify um, against us, rather than despairing, we can lift up our heads in hope because our redemption is drawing near. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Now you know what that means, don't you? I mean, we know we are already redeemed. The price has been paid. But there is a sense in some of the language of the, of the Gospels and the New Testament, there is a sense which always anticipates the future and the, 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 the fullest expression of what Jesus came to save us for. So there's a sense in, in terms of our salvation is not yet complete, even though it is complete. We are new creations, but we've not yet reached our, our future home. We are already, already redeemed, but we've not yet gone to the place that the Lord Jesus is preparing for us. But that glorious day that we sang about in our hymn, that we sang about in other hymns that we sang this morning during our worship service, that's the redemption that is drawing near and every time we see terrible things going on in the world, we can take them as a sign. Not that the end of the world is about to happen or this relates to this prophecy or that prophecy, but they're just ongoing signs that we are living in a broken world where terrible things will continue to happen because of sin. But our redemption is getting nearer and nearer. And Jesus is also saying in verses 34 to 36 that along with that hope, we should recognise that we are living in a spiritual war zone. And therefore, we need to be careful, and we need to be watchful, and we need to be prayerful. So that, so that, when we stand before him one day, we will know that we didn't deny him, and we didn't betray him, and that we didn't give up on him. You know, we're all going to stand before the Lord one day, and the thing that would... Delight us most, isn't it, to hear the Lord saying that he is delighted in, in, in us, that he's pleased with our lives of service. And uh, none of us, I'm sure, would, you know, would, you know, would, you know, would say that, evaluate our lives and, 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 and want to give a, a single a, a, an opinion about whether the Lord would say that to us. But we certainly don't want to be at the other end of the spectrum, do we? We don't want to feel like Peter felt when he stood before the Lord, knowing that he'd betrayed him, that he'd denied him, that he'd given up faith in him. So whatever happens in our lives and whatever difficulties we face, we just need to keep hold of that, don't we? 
We need to keep hold of our faith, keep hold of our hope, keep hold of our, our trust. You know, um, I'm going to finish with this, um, with Peter, actually. Um, Peter had that terrible experience, didn't he? And, he? and the Lord, in his grace, brought him through it. I'm going to finish with, with what Peter learned. Because when you know, Peter listened to this prophecy and many other things besides, and Peter learned, and in his second epistle, at uh, the end of that letter, he wanted to pass on something to the saints relevant to what we've been thinking about this morning. So I'm going to just finish by reading from 2 Peter chapter 3. I think that this is so clear that it will not require any further comment from me, so I'm just going to read it. In my Bible, it's got the title, The Day of the Lord. Verse 1. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I've written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Saviour through your apostles. <coughs> Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come. Scoffing and following their own evil desires, they will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on since it has from the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water. And by water, these waters also, the world of that time, was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and the earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him.